0: Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. Look up the word defective in the dictionary, it's an adjective meaning imperfect or faulty. And faulty is defined as working badly or unreliably, having or displaying weakness. So you're probably thinking, wow, really? That's an unexpected and potentially offensive episode title for the Advancing Women podcast. And it is provocative for sure, but it is meant to punctuate the messaging we as women experience When we consider perceptions of women through the social cultural lens, as it relates to our life choices related to work, advancement, and family, the messages tend to imply imperfect, faulty, defective in some way, regardless of the choices we as women make and the paths we take. Whether we are stay-at-home moms, a working mother, part-time working parent, or full-time, or a woman who has chosen not to have children. The choice often feels like it results in judgment and punctuation of our shortcomings as women. The media messaging, the books and articles, the narratives that emerge consistently suggest that we are falling short every time, regardless of our choice. There's this litany of messages. Women who work full-time with children aren't being good moms. Mothers who stay at home full-time are not fulfilling their intellectual promise and potential, basically letting down or setting back the women's movement. For women who choose to do both, that's not good enough. They're not good enough at either being a mom or at being at work. And for women who choose not to have kids, well, they're selfish or missing out on what's important in life. It's maddening, really, these messages these stereotypes. No matter the choice, the message is there. You're not doing something right, or at least as well as you should, that you're substandard. You're in some way defective. Truthfully, the bar has been raised very high for women in society today, in both the workforce and on the home front. Since the women's movement and the resulting emergence of more women in the workforce, the way society defines success for women has blurred. Think about the women's movement before the suffragettes, you know, the badass women who fought so hard for basic rights for women, like the right to vote. The expectations for women were clear. Men as breadwinners, women as homemakers. Today, though, women work in greater numbers than ever before, while the domestic expectations for them at home persists. Indeed, plentiful research shows that despite women being more educated and more employed than ever, women are still taking on most of the household and familial duties. And it's not just about chores and childcare. Women are also much more likely to be the ones who care for sick or elderly family members or parents. More than three decades ago, sociologist and Berkeley professor Arlie Hochschild, initiated a tidal wave of conversation and controversy with her best-selling book, The Second Shift, Working Families and the Revolution at Home. This book was the culmination of her extensive research. She studied um, doing interviews and observations in home, women and men with young children who were married and both worked full-time. The findings of her study confirmed what most of us could probably guess – that for couples with children who both work there's another full-time job waiting at home and the title of course refers to that those findings household and childcare duties that follow the day's work for pay outside of the home are the second shift and this research along with many similar studies show that although both men and women experience the second shift to some level women tend to shoulder most of the second shift responsibility in writing this book, Hochschild brought to the forefront what really happens in dual career households. I strongly recommend the book. It's a great read. But in summary, she found that adding together time in paid work, childcare, and housework, working mothers put in about a month or more of work a year more than their spouses. Now, the book has been updated in recent years for a workforce that's now half female, um, and more recent studies and statistics show how little things have changed from when this book was first written to the revised versions that have come out in the past few years. Ultimately, we still have a workforce that was originally designed for men with stay-at-home wives, that homemaker breadwinner model, and that is just an antiquated model in today's 21st century workforce. And it truly contributes to this constant feeling and messaging and narrative that we are not enough, that we are somehow defective no matter what choice we make. It's interesting to consider the evolution of the woman's movement. The cultural climate during the first wave of feminism, that was around the late 1800s through the early 1900s, advocated for women's domestic roles and what historian Barbara Welter referred to as the cult of true womanhood, where woman was, quote, a hostage to her home with the ideal attributes of womanhood, including piety, purity, submissiveness, and domesticity. And I'm sure like me, you cringe when you hear that. Let's face it, at that time, women's primary role was viewed as a reproductive role to bear children. In fact, research from that era shows how women who desired more intellectual pursuits beyond their roles as wife and mother were viewed with suspicion, often ostracized and warned of the dangers of their intellectual quests, even negatively affecting their ability to bear children. Okay, so the discussion of women damaging their ability to reproduce due to intellectual pursuits and professional work has waned and rightfully seems absurd today. But yet, the social narrative persists where often working mothers are viewed as not fulfilling their family responsibilities, while women who exit the workforce after the birth of their children are viewed as not meeting their full intellectual and professional potential. The message is that they are letting down the gender and setting the feminist movement back. Again, this is another damned if you do, damned if you don't paradigm that we as women consistently experience and that I talk about a lot in this podcast. It feels like it's coming up in some way in almost every episode. No matter what choice we make, we may be deemed in some way as not enough. So feminists fought for women to have a place in the workforce, and of course we do. Women are a force to behold in the workplace, succeeding, and our success is essential to our country's prosperity. But in reality, it's kind of been like, okay, sure, you can work as long as you're still going to take care of the kids and take care of the house and the cooking and the cleaning. And this is how we've ended up with that second shift and with women feeling like it's never enough, like we are never enough. And the current culture just hasn't caught up with what we need to do to fix the problem. Although women and men are both working in most cases, even when they have children, men and women still both work more often than not. And while working mothers spend more time on household labor and childcare than working fathers, they're not more likely to have additional access to additional workplace benefits or additional paid sick leave or workplace flexibility, affordable childcare. So even though we know that they have this unfair share of that labor, there is not um, systemic solutions or workplace benefits in place to address this. So there's a very real imbalance that has negative consequences for women's professional advancement. For example, research shows that women take 10 times as much temporary leave from work as men upon the arrival of a child. And that usually means that women are taking home less or no money during their time off, which can lead to long-term financial consequences due to loss of income and benefits, misraises and promotions. And this is particularly concerning in a culture that has very high divorce rates. This idea that you can just kind of take a break from those financials and that it'll all be okay because perhaps your spouse is is still making very good money, well, that can have consequences as well in a culture where it just doesn't always end up the way sometimes it looked like it was going to when we kind of made the unspoken or unwritten deal to take that step back. Research also shows that women are eight times more likely than men to look after sick children or manage their children's schedules, which, again, takes time out of their workday or their other daily responsibilities. This does not put women in their strongest advancement position. And we see that after becoming a parent, women are more likely to switch to a job with greater flexibility and the ability to work more from home, which also can result in lower pay and again, not the strongest advancement position. Just women though, not men. After they also become a parent, there's actually a fatherhood premium where men with kids make more money while there's that motherhood penalty where women with children make less And because it is assumed all women may become mothers, there can even be a penalty on women who have chosen not to have kids. There's actually a thing called fertility discrimination, where some studies show that just being a woman of childbearing age can negatively impact your chances of being hired. In one study of 500 managers, 40% indicated the cost of maternity leave is too high and women, quote, aren't as good at their jobs when they return, end quote. Yep, 40% admitted they are generally wary of hiring a woman of childbearing age. And a quarter of the participants said that they would rather hire a man to get around issues of maternity leave and childcare when the woman does return to work. So even if you don't ever plan to have kids, or if you don't want to take time off or slow track, you are still, as discussed in the previous episode when we talked about the maternal wall bias, experiencing bias, and it's manifested in the form of strong negative competence and commitment assumptions triggered by motherhood or the potential of motherhood, and bias manifested as societal disapproval on the grounds that mothers should be at home or working fewer hours. And as I noted in an earlier podcast, Research shows that women with children are routinely pushed to the margins of the professional world, experiencing that motherhood penalty in the workplace where they encounter disadvantage in pay and perceived competence. This is all to say that there is persistent bias against women, mothers, women of childbearing age that remains embedded on the job, in the home, and culturally. Outside of the negative financial and career ramifications, women are also more stressed and have less time for self-care. So if you choose to have children and a career, that is just part of your reality. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, but culturally we all appreciate and value that sacrifice. Mm, Not really. Hold your applause. In fact, what we usually hear is, well, that was your choice to have kids and to work. So suck it up. And that language that focuses on choice is dangerous because research shows that the more embedded the choice narrative is in women's decisions to work after having children, the less likely there are to be policies or solutions to help women who want to work after having children stay and succeed. This all leads working mothers to be in this damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario where it comes to juggling career and family, judgment that you're a bad mom if you're not 100% focused on your kids, but also that you're a bad employee if you're not 100% committed to your work. The pressure and the judgment coming from both sides causes working mothers to feel inadequate, not enough, defective. But let's put motherhood aside for a second. Women are more likely than men to stop working to care for elderly family members, which completely removes them from the workforce in some cases. So gender and the caregiver roles deemed the job of women creates advancement issues for all women. And also, this is how tug-of-war bias sneaks in, where bias against women can foster conflict amongst women. And we start to see and hear women without children feeling like they are disadvantaged because of women with children. It's a displacing of frustration, and this is unfortunately perpetuated and needs to be interrupted. In one study where the researchers interviewed professional women without children, a narrative emerged relative to a frustration in things like assumptions that they can work nights, weekends, whenever, that colleagues and bosses may assume women without kids are and should always be available, that they should be the one to be available, sometimes for the worst shifts or the weekend calls. This perpetuates the feeling that women with kids are making it harder for them when it's really the corporate and social cultural standards, stereotypes, and lacks of policies, benefits, and structures that are driving this problem. And to be clear, by no means do working moms have a stronghold on bias against women. There is plenty of judgment to go around. Society can find imperfection and fault in all women, and they do. Plenty of ways to suggest we are all in some way defective. So let's talk a little bit more about women who choose not to have children. Surely these women can prioritize their careers without letting our gender and the whole of society down, right? Mm, Actually, no. In fact, society often unfairly deems these women the most defective of all. These are the women who don't follow social cultural expectations for women to have children the repercussions, the backlash of this failure to meet societal expectations can include judgment and unwarranted pity and being stigmatized. This idea of being the most defective of all. Elizabeth Plank notes in her 2015 article, What's Wrong with Women Who Don't Want Kids, that although men are sometimes criticized for opting out of having children, They just don't face nearly the same amount of contempt as childless women who are often cast as shallow or selfish or stereotypically cat ladies for choosing not to procreate as though somehow they don't have as full of a life. Hearing a woman say she is child-free by choice seems to give some people the license to judge them as selfish, self-absorbed, and shallow, defective. So, what if you choose to stay home with your kids then? Isn't that then fulfilling societal expectations of women as homemakers and caregivers? Nope, you guessed it, also defective, a failure to our gender, feminism, the women's movement, and women's overall workforce advancement. This is how so many people end up feeling. And while it is unfair, even absurd, we feel it nonetheless. Even though the woman is homemaker, man is breadwinner model, is totally antiquated in a culture where both men and women are in the workforce in equal numbers. What is socially valued, unfortunately, remains gender biased, with women's value being inextricably tied with the home and the family, as men's value is inextricably tied to their work. And for women, it's not just a lose-lose paradigm. It's a lose-lose, lose-lose paradigm. Work, stay at home. Have kids, don't have kids, no matter what the choice, what can unfortunately result from all the bias against women is this culture of judgment and very public judgment from social media to traditional media. It is there and it is in our faces. All women being judged by society, always with the undertone of defective or less than, no matter which path we take or which choice we make. And this, again, results in that tug-of-war bias, that conflict among women. So when people are judged, right, they can get defensive and really dig their heels in in terms of their own choices. So to cope with this cultural castigation, women often adopt these coping strategies that reinforce their life choices, This is where language that doesn't serve women and is in conflict with women's nature of support can unfortunately rear its ugly head. Statements like, and I'm sure you've heard some of these, or statements like them, no matter where you are in all of this. I don't want somebody else raising my kids, so I choose to stay home, as though fathers everywhere who most often work full time don't actually have a part in raising their children. I hear people talk about awesome dads who work 50 hours a week all the time. This is nonsense that women who work are letting someone else raise their kids, but we hear it or some version of it nonetheless. It's maddening. Or statements like, I can't imagine not working, not using my brain all day. I could never stay at home. As though you somehow leave your brain talent and ambition at the hospital when you take your kids home. And then there's, I think she'll really regret not having children someday. It's a lonely choice. She'll be sorry. This too is nonsense, as the women can't fully be an established or complete woman without children. All of this judgy, unhelpful BS, and we need to interrupt any of this type of language. Call it out, interrupt it, and just completely reject it, because it does not serve women, it is not fair, and it is not accurate and these constant comparisons and judgments again are exacerbated by social media and this kind of open forum of people having commentary about everyone else's lives that is such a part of our current culture so what's the answer then how do we fix this well we have to start by first talking about it and acknowledging that it happens that the judgment happens and acknowledge and accept that it is damaging to all women We have to take the time to understand the complexity of the experience of women and hold up to the light, the distasteful social constructs and biases that lead to conflict and judgment against women and among women. We need to combat judgment, conflict, and bias with compassion and commitment to the persisterhood. We talked about the persisterhood in a previous episode, women who join forces to persist and insist against any form of oppression of women. We have to persist in working to create a more equitable and accessible advancement landscape and success narrative for all women. Importantly, we have to be vigilant in reminding ourselves often that the choices of others are not an affront to our choices. I'm gonna say that again because it's so critical. The choices of others are not an affront to our choices. A woman who makes another choice is not somehow marginalizing our choice, and none of our choices makes us more or less of a woman or a mother or a human being in any way, and certainly none of these choices makes us in any way defective. We need to remind ourselves that we are all in this together. That together we rise and that we are all doing the best we can in a world where women have so many unique biases and barriers to overcome, and so many barriers, regardless of which choice we make. As author Regina Brett astutely states, don't compare your life to others. You have no idea what their journey is all about. Honestly, comparison is the quickest route to unhappiness. And the same can be true of choices. Comparing our choices to other and ranking them or judging them, it's a pointless exercise that has no positive value and results in nothing good. So let's get into the habit, maybe even start a movement to stop the comparing and judging and to call out all who do. We need to interrupt that narrative that divides and therefore does not serve women. We need to commit to supporting each other on this journey with compassion and absolute acceptance. The manifest statement for this week is simple. You are neither broken nor defective. There are infinite choices and ways to be a woman. This is the wisdom of the warrior woman. For all you warriors listening who want to continue to transcend barriers and thrive, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so make sure to hit that subscribe button. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at advancingwomenpodcast. I love getting your feedback and ideas on topics you'd like to hear me cover in more depth or new topics you'd like me to explore. So please email me at Dr. Simone at advancingwomenpodcast.com with your ideas and feedback. That's D-R-D-E-S-I-M-O-N-E at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank my producer, Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior, who wrote the music for this podcast. It's totally badass, and I love it. And a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior, who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.